you would, will you turn with me to John chapter 14? We are still working our way through this passage. That's this outline here. John chapter 14. And uh, you'll remember we said this, this passage, we're in verses 15 through, through 26. Uh, this passage unfolds in, in cycles. So you can look at the very back of your outline there. I have the table of how this passage is, is unfolding. By cycles, I mean that it repeats itself in, in three similar times, according to the same pattern. And each cycle builds on or develops the, the one before it a little bit more. And this morning, we're going to be focusing on cycle three, uh, how this passage concludes in verses 23 to 24. But by way of review, I, I want to begin by asking, what is the main point of this passage, of these verses here? What is so significant about Jesus' teaching in this passage? So remember the context, what's going on. Jesus' disciples are filled with sorrow, they're filled with confusion, they're filled with fear. Jesus has just announced that he's going away from them, and they cannot go with him. Uh, this came as a stunning blow to the disciples. They expected the glorious messianic kingdom to arrive immediately. They expected all of God's promises to Israel to come right away. More than that, they, they've come to depend on Jesus. They've come to love Jesus and fellowship with Jesus. And now here he is saying he's going away from them, and they're confused, and they're fearful. And so Jesus is teaching them and us that they must not be troubled by his departure as he goes through the cross back to his Father in, in heaven. In fact, his departure is actually very, very good news for you and I. Well, how is that so? Well, we learned at the beginning of chapter 14 that it's good news because he's going away to prepare a place in his Father's house. So that his disciples would be able to join him in his father's presence forever, permanently. His father's house represents his father's heavenly temple, if you will. And through the cross, Christ prepares the way for us as believers to be able to be with the father and enjoy his glory from, as Christ did from eternity. But that's not all. It's not only good news for the future. It's also good news for disciples, for you and me, here and now, that Jesus go away. Well, how so? Well, the answer to that question is the main point of this passage. How is it good news for us now that Jesus go away? What's the answer? And he gives us the answer actually explicitly in chapter 16. So go there with me. Chapter 16, verse 6. How is it good news for us now that Jesus go away. Chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He's told them he's going away. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away through the cross to the Father, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. The good news is that Christ is going away, and therefore the Holy Spirit will come 
can be given to the disciples. The Spirit will only be given if Jesus is glorified. And when the Spirit is given, a new stage of God's plan of redemption will be ushered in. The cross and the resurrection and the glorification of Christ are essential events that must happen. And if they don't, the Spirit will not be given in this new way. Christ's glorification in heaven will usher in a new age and a massive development in God's plan of redemption. So before we dive into our, our passage, I want to try to answer um, this question. What is so significant about the gift of the Spirit? Okay, so it's good news that Christ goes away so that the Spirit will come, but why is that so significant? What's so special about the gift of the Spirit? Why is that better than the physical presence of Christ? And how does, does that make this age, in between Christ's two comings, so significant? So let's answer those, those two questions briefly. I want to give you two ways that the gift of the Spirit constitutes such a major shift in salvation history, and why that's good news for us. And these two ways are built on what we have seen through the Gospel of John so far. So number one. These are not in your notes. You can jot them down if you, if you like. Number one, through the gift of the Spirit, the abiding presence of God is experienced to a greater degree. Through the gift of the Spirit, the abiding presence of God is experienced to a greater degree. So God's purpose in creation and the Garden of Eden was his unhindered presence and fellowship with a holy and worshiping people. Eden was the first temple, if you will. It was the place where God met with man. And God's plan was not just to meet with man in Eden. His plan was that Eden would grow and expand as man was fruitful and multiplied so that one day the world would become his global temple, if you will. That was his plan from creation. That purpose was obviously hindered in the fall, wasn't it? Adam is expelled from Eden, from the life and the fellowship of God. And ever since the fall, God has been on mission to restore Eden. Throughout salvation history, God has been progressively restoring his creation purposes of dwelling in unhindered fellowship with his people and filling the world with his covenant presence as a cosmic temple. And one of the first steps in that plan was the construction of what? Of the tabernacle and the temple. But since sin has entered into the world, God's presence with an unholy people would now need to be mediated through sacrifices and through priests. That's why we have all these trappings in the, in the temple. But God's purpose is progressively being restored. He's dwelling with his people again. But that's not all. God's purpose was never to be confined to the temple building. The temple was not an end in itself. The temple looked forward to something even greater. And in John, we discover that Christ has come to be the fulfillment of of the temple's function and purposes. The temple was in preparation for the greater temple, Jesus Christ. 
the fullness of God's presence and God's glory, which once filled the temple, now fills Jesus Christ, who dwells among us. The access point to God is no longer through a place, it is through a person, through Jesus Christ. The place of atonement through which we can have access to God is no longer through the temple, it is through Christ. And since Christ is the temple, that means that all of us, you and me, who are in union with Christ, my faith in relationship with Christ, we become a part of that temple. And that's what our passage is teaching us this morning. Disciples, by virtue of their union with Christ, receive the very life and presence of God in themselves through the Holy Spirit. The place of God's abiding presence is no longer in a temple, but it's in a believer, owing to their union with Christ. The presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit has now, because of Christ's cross and glorification, come to reside in a believer. So say it this way, sin has been so decisively dealt with. God has been so decisively pleased and satisfied with Christ that there is nothing left that needs to be done to hinder this intimate relationship of God dwelling in you in this new way. And because that is the case, God's original purpose of filling the earth, that the entire earth becomes Eden, is now progressively being fulfilled as well as more and more people come to faith and are made into dwelling places of God, you see? And all of this will reach full consummation in the new creation. Flip over there really quickly, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 1. This is the final point. This is the final consummation of it all. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, the new creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. So he sees the new creation, and then he puts it in new terms. I see the new creation is a city. It's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Who is it? What is the new city? It's a bride. It's the people of God, you and me. Adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, The dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is God's plan from the very beginning. And the point is that all of creation, the whole new creation, is the holy of holies. Is the people of God. His covenant presence fills the universe. As he dwells with his people. That's the consummation. And while all of that is still future, the point being made in our passage is that that age, Revelation 21, has already begun now in some significant sense. The future has already broken into the present through the gift of the Spirit. That is why the Holy Spirit is so significant. This plan of God has reached this new stage in salvation history. That's why it's good news that Jesus go away. Number two. Through the gift of the Spirit, disciples will be equipped to carry out Christ's mission as his representatives. 
There is a sense in which Christ's work has not yet been fully accomplished. His finished work of redemption has been done, it's accomplished, but the application of that work is still unfolding. He's still carrying it out. He's still saving sheep from all nations. He's still sanctifying his, his people. But now that Christ is in heaven, he continues this work through his disciples, through you and through me. Disciples have been made into representatives of Christ. We've been sent by Christ, just as Christ was sent by the Father. We've been given the Spirit, just as Christ was given the Spirit by his Father. The same Spirit that rested on Christ in his ministry now rests on you and me for our ministry. In other words, the greatness of the gift of the Spirit consists in the fact that as disciples, we've been equipped and commissioned to carry out Christ's mission on earth as his representatives. We're the instruments through which Christ is still working. And he's given us everything we need in the Holy Spirit. So you can say that the gift of the Spirit is the present experience of the goal of our salvation. The unhindered fellowship with God. And the gift of the Spirit is the means to the salvation of others. So that they would become a holy temple like people who know God. As disciples, we've been commissioned by Christ to continue his mission and be given everything that we need in the Spirit. So all of that is review. Two ways the Spirit constitutes such a major shift in salvation history. That's why it's good news that Jesus go away. That's what is so significant about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now we're ready to jump into our passage. We've called this entire section Christ's Gift. To his loving disciples, the indwelling presence of God through the Spirit. So by way of review, let's begin by reading the previous two cycles that we looked at last time, and then we'll jump into our verses this morning. Look at verse 15, John 14. Verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper will be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's cycle one, the promise of the gift of the Spirit. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now cycle two, culminating with the indwelling presence of Christ, the Son. And now this morning we come to cycle three. The gift of the Father's indwelling presence through the Spirit, verses 22 through 24. Let's look at verse 21, how it ends. Jesus ends by declaring that he will manifest himself to his true disciples and not to the world. But the question now is how, Jesus, will you do that? How will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And as we come to cycle three, the answer to that question is unmistakable. And if you're having that question, so did the disciples. Verse 22, we get a clarifying question. Look at verse 22. 
Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So this is the fourth time so far in the upper room that a disciple interrupts Christ to ask a clarifying question. I think John records these because they're the questions that we are probably asking, right? And they're questions that we need to know the answer of in order to rightly understand Christ's teaching. So there's the question, how, Jesus, will you do that? It's literally, Lord, what has happened that you are about to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? We have Judas here asking. Obviously, it's not Judas Iscariot. He's out of the room. This is Judas, probably Judas, the son of James, another one of Christ's apostles. And he asked this on behalf of all the other disciples. What has happened that you're about to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? His question is not so much why will Jesus manifest himself only to the disciples, but how? What kind of circumstances would lead to this being possible, that Christ can manifest himself only to disciples? This word manifest is often used in the Old Testament for manifestations of God. So think of Mount Sinai. God manifests himself in all of his splendor and glory to Moses and to Israel. And the disciples expected a similar display of unmistakable and brilliant glory of the Messiah as he comes and sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. As Messiah, he would be manifested such that all would see it. It would be unmistakable. And really, that expectation is not at all wrong. We get promises of that in the Old Testament in a number of places. Daniel 7 is, is one of those. Jesus also said the same thing. Matthew 24, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It will be unmistakable. Revelation 1, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. One day Christ will be manifest in all of his messianic splendor and all will see him. But Judas does not realize that the Messiah will have two comings. And following his first coming, his glorious Messiah would be manifested, but only his own would see it. Only you and me would see it. D.A. Carson summarizes it in this way. He says, Judas hears these distinctions between what the world will perceive or be given and what the disciples will enjoy. And in his mind, he cannot square the distinction with his belief that the kingdom must arrive in undeniable and irresistible splendor. If Jesus is the Messianic king, then he must startle the world with apocalyptic self-disclosure. It must be like the book of Revelation. And it will be one day but not in his first coming. So what then will take place? That only disciples will receive the manifestation of Christ in his messianic splendor, and not the world. And Jesus gives us the answer in the following verses. And from these verses, it's clear that he's not talking about his resurrection appearances merely. He's talking about something much greater, something that you and I experience as disciples. So look now at Jesus' clarifying answer, verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Now, if you don't recognize that this whole passage is unfolded in these cycles, right, cycle one, two, and three, and they unfold in this similar pattern, you might think that Jesus isn't answering Judas's question here. You're reading through it, and Judas says, what's going to happen? How will you manifest yourself to us, not the world? And Jesus says something about, if you love me, you'll keep my word. Is Jesus just avoiding the, the question? Well, no, if we've been tracking and seeing how this passage has been unfolding, what is Jesus doing? He's starting over again. He's starting another cycle. Begins with the test of a true disciple, goes to the Father's response, and it culminates with the indwelling presence of God. And that's what Jesus is doing here again. So let's walk through it. First, the true, the identity of true disciples is again defined. The identity of true disciples is again defined. This is the beginning of the third cycle, and so we get this test a third time. And each time it's said a little bit differently to emphasize something, something unique. So let's look at it. First, if any, the scope of the focus. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me. Back in verse 15, he said, if you, talking to the 12 or the 11, but here it's if anyone. So Jesus wants to make sure that we get that this test and all the promises that follow are not just for the 11. They are for every one of Christ's disciples, you and me, if anyone. The test and the promises that follow are for any who read the Gospel of John. Next, in the scope of the focus, we get the engine of love. If anyone loves me. We said last time that love of Christ is not the same thing as obedience to Christ. The two are inseparable. No one loves Christ who does not obey him. And no one obeys Christ who doesn't do so from love to him. But they're not the same. Love for Christ is the engine which is in all true believers. It's created by our tasting and receiving his love to us in the gospel. And it produces a new love in our hearts for him. We love because he first loved us. Right? And that engine makes our wheels turn. And it moves us on the road of his commandments. So what is love to Christ? What does this engine look like, if you will? This is how I would define it. Love for Christ is an affectionate devotion to Christ. Affectionate desires for Christ. Think of the love for the world. What does that mean? You love the world? John tells us in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or anything in it, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. People delight in the world and the pleasures of the world, and they're devoted to it. To love the world is to delight in this godless system. So then what does it look like to love Christ? It looks like to delight in all that he is. You've seen the gospel. You've tasted the gospel. And it's him that you love. It's him that you are satisfied with. You cherish him. You desire him. You take pleasure in his person. But what does that love produce? World links that love produces what? A devotion to the things of the world. But for believers, it produces what? It produces the outworking of love. He will keep my word. This is the proof 
that there's genuine love of Christ in your heart. Those who love Christ, those who delight in Christ, keep his word. Notice that's a change here. Back in verse 15, they keep his commandments, plural, each of his individual commandments. Here it's singular. Keeps my word. It refers to the sum total of Christ's teaching. Everything Christ taught. His promises, his warnings, his commandments, his teaching. Disciples keep it. All true disciples have come to love Christ and they demonstrate it by keeping his word. Now what does that mean? What does it look like to keep Christ's word? I'll give you two things. What does it look like to keep Christ's word? How do I know? Am I keeping Christ's word? I'd say first, it looks like keeping Christ's teaching in its entirety constantly before you. Keeping Christ's teaching constantly before you. It's something you treasure. You don't want to forget it. You want to be even more familiar with it. So before you were married, if you had a letter from your fiancé, and you were separated for a good period of time, as we experienced, um, what did you do with that letter? You read it probably over and over again. You, wanted, you didn't want to miss a single nuance in it. You wanted to understand it. It communicated the person of the one you, you love. And that's what it looks like to keep Christ's word. Because you love him, you want to grow more and more familiar with all that he has spoken and all that he's taught. That's evidence of love to Christ. What else does it look like to keep Christ's teaching? It looks like a growing care to live in light of it. It seeks to apply it carefully. It seeks to know it and then seeks to live in light of it. Because that's true, this is how it's shaping my life. So if you get a new job, first day your boss comes in and lays a large operator's manual on your desk, a large one, big one, complicated, not easy, tells you to learn it. So that if you learn it, you'll be able to operate this machinery correctly and properly. But if you knew that this job would offer you a six-figure salary, it's hard to learn this uh, manual, but it's quite compensation for it. I wonder how many in here would easily pour ourselves over that manual day and night. So we know it backwards and forwards so that we can operate this machinery in the way it was designed to be operated. So we can bring home a nice big paycheck. But how few of us pour ourselves over God's word like that? Could it be that we love and treasure money? Or do we love and treasure Christ and his word? Those who keep his word Seek to know it so that they can live in light of it and carry it out and be conformed to all that it says and a person that really believes the promises and the teaching shaped after it. That's what it looks like to keep Christ's word. That's the evidence that you love Christ. And that's the test Jesus gives as he answers this question. That's what a true Christian looks like. That's what people who receive these promises look like. These are the desires that are in their hearts. A Christian is not somebody who knows the facts of the gospel or the facts of the Bible. It's not someone who simply does a few of the duties. 
go to church, read the Bible, pray. A Christian is someone who has embraced Christ's love. And by that love have been changed into a person who delights in Christ, who knows who takes pleasure in him. And that manifests itself in how we treat the word, what Christ has spoken. So to the extent that you keep the word is the extent to which you love Christ and no more and no less is what Jesus says. So that's the identity of disciples. That is who receives these promises. Next, Jesus gives us, explains the Father's response of love to disciples who love Christ. Look at verse 23 again. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. The Father so loves the Son that he loves all those who love his Son. Remember, this is the picture of a growing relationship here. The points to draw a tight circle around those who receive these promises. The only ones that get these promises are those God loves, the Father loves. Who are those? Well, it's those who love Christ. And who are those? It's those that Christ loved first. And now, we get the promise. This is the answer to Judas's question. How? Will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? The first cycle, verses 16 to 17, the promise was the gift of the Spirit. The second cycle was the promise of the Son's mutual indwelling with the believer through the Spirit. And here in verse 13, we get the promise of the Father's and the Son's abiding dwelling in the believer through the Spirit. How will Jesus manifest himself only to disciples? He will manifest himself as he and the Father come to disciples to make their abode in that disciple. So let's read the rest of verse 23. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That word home is the same word that was used back in chapter 14, verse 2. Look there with me. In my father's house are many rooms. Rooms means abiding places, dwelling places, abodes. That's the same word used here. Verse 2, chapter 14, verse 2, spoke of God's temple, heavenly temple, in which there are many rooms for disciples to come and inhabit. But here, the abode is not heaven, but it's the believer himself. And the one dwelling in it is none other than the Father and the Son. See that? The promise is that through the gift of the Spirit, the disciple will become a dwelling place for the triune God. Since Christ is the true temple, all disciples who are in relationship with him will become a part of this temple and made now, in this life, before you get to heaven, into the dwelling place of God, experiencing the presence of a holy God in unhindered fellowship. We have the entire Trinity taking up residence here, filling the life of the believer. How does God do that? The answer is through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit so perfectly represents the Father, so perfectly represents the Son, that to have the Spirit is to have all three. That's Jesus' point. Hasselberger sums it up well. He says, even now in the time between Jesus' first and second comings, the Spirit will enable disciples to enjoy the ultimate covenant blessing. 
the indwelling presence of the triune God. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and I? Let me give you four things. Number one, this is what it means to be a Christian, my friends. This is not just for mature Christians, super Christians who hit that second level. If you don't have the Spirit, then you're not saved. And if you are saved, then you have the Spirit of God and the triune life of God within you. Experiencing the presence of God before it's something that you do or feel or participate in. Before it's any of that, it's first and foremost a reality which is already true for you believers. If you're a believer, you have this. This is what it means to be a Christian. We are able to relate with God and commune with God because this is first the reality of us. We're able to experience his presence because he's first and foremost already abiding in us. That's what it means to be a Christian. Number two, it should change the way we think about people, especially Christians. We forget to look at people through spiritual lenses, don't we? Every time you meet a believer, friends, I'm looking at many right now. You're looking at a person in whom the life of the triune God dwells, a temple. And whenever you see an unbeliever, you're looking at someone who is a child of the devil, according to Jesus in chapter 8. But somebody who could be made into this kind of a new creation, the dwelling place of God. Look at people through spiritual lenses. Number three, we experience practically the indwelling presence of God through faith in the word. This is not some mystical thing. It's not some tinglies that you feel. It's not some ritual you have to go through or perform? How do you practically experience the indwelling presence of God in your life? Through faith in the Word, in the Scriptures. And that's the role of the Spirit. Hold your hand here. Go over. We're almost out of time. Go quickly. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says the very same thing. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 16. How do we experience the indwelling presence of God? What's the role of the Spirit in this? Ephesians 3.16. Paul's praying that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. That's how you experience it. And the Spirit produces that faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's how you experience this. By faith, the word. Be it filled with the love of Christ. Be it filled with the gospel. That's the role of the Spirit. And that's how you experience it. And as that's there, 
be made into a fruitful garden. We're going to get to chapter 15 pretty soon. Number four. In this age, the only ones who behold Christ in his glory, he's going to manifest himself, remember? The only ones who see that are his disciples. Through the Spirit, we behold the manifestation of Christ's glory by faith, through the words of Christ. His words are given to us by the Spirit, and they're enabled, we're enabled to believe them by the same Spirit. So know who you are, believer. It's an amazing thing to be a Christian. You behold the glory of Christ. He's manifested himself to you in this way. He's giving you the Spirit, and you're able to see his glory. Well, we're almost done. We've got out of time. There's one final concluding statement here in verse 24. Go back there, chapter 14 with me. John 14, verse 24. He wraps it up with another one of these tests. And he puts it in the negative this time. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I think he's telling us two things. Number one, he's telling us the impossibility to keep the words of Christ without the engine of love. You can't do it, is what he's saying. It's impossible to follow Christ without the engine of love. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. Go to church, read the Bible, pray. It's a life of love which leads you to those do's and don'ts. You can't follow Christ without love for Christ. Next, he gives us the inseparable link between Christ's words and the Father. Christ speaks only the words of the Father. And so, he removes any possibility for us to say that I love God and I don't love Christ. What you do with Christ's words, what you do with Christ, is what you do with God. With that, Jesus defines his disciples. They are lovers of God because they are lovers of Christ. They are people in whom God dwells through his spirit. They enjoy the ultimate covenant blessing, fellowship with God, and they're equipped now to be his representatives in this earth as they're made into a fruitful vine, as they minister the word and the gospel to those around them so that the world might be filled with the presence of God. And that is John 14, verses 15 to 24. Any questions, comments? It's a rich, deep passage for sure. Mike? Yes. Just how unmistakable uh, Trinitarian passage is. <laughs> and you argue it's a good place to take somebody, even on that point alone, mm -hmm. but then break that out to say, it's not just some theological topic, it's to look at in specificity what it means to be brought into the relationship. The flightful uh, devotion, the definition you gave, takes such a rich text to say it's not just a theological term, look at the loving devotion of this Trinitarian God who's been brought into a relationship. Excellent. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And the Trinity gives us the model of that relationship. The Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father. We are brought into that. That's what you're saying. And, uh, yeah. One of the advantages to me that Jesus went away is that if he stayed here in person, I would have had a chance in the world to ever meet him. Yeah. <laughs> because with all these millions and millions of people, he had to go away so I could have the Spirit with him. Amen.
That's the advantage. Praise the Lord. It's good. Let's see his hand over here. Good. Anything else? All right. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. You're so good. Thank you for the life that we have in Christ. Help us to know what is ours. By virtue of the fact that we're his disciples. Help us to be people to delight, to treasure Christ more, and his words more, experience that relationship with him more and more, keeping his words. We would love him like we should. Lord, that we would know the blessings that we have. Then that we would be faithful representatives of him in this world as you accomplish your purposes. We love you. Prepare our hearts for the service to come. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.